Welcome to Laguna Beach Living, where our job is to keep you up to date with the cultural life of Laguna Beach and its surrounding areas. With over 200 articles on lagunabeachliving.com, we post new content twice a week and aim to highlight local businesses and entrepreneurs through well-written editorials, custom photo shoots, and sleek design. Join us as we showcase the town that we love and the people who make it the icon that it is. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening in. I am here today with Kayla Lyons, founder of the Sober Curious Movement 1000 Hours Dry, who promotes an inclusive alcohol-free lifestyle that differs from the sometimes guilt-ridden structure of AA. Kayla, hi. Hi, how are you? Thanks for being my guest on the new Laguna Beach Living podcast. This has been really a fun thing to do. We did season one um, last year, and so this is going to be the start of season two. And I'm just so excited to record with you because you have a podcast based in Newport, The Dry Life, and you just like have created such an incredible community, which I'm excited to talk to you about. Thank you. Yeah, it's awesome to represent the OC. And it's nice also to be on someone else's podcast and and not be the host sometimes. So yeah, (laughs) thanks for having me. Of course. So just to to start it off, you live in Newport Beach now. Um, Are you originally from Newport? Or what brought you to Newport? So I was actually born in Palm Springs. Um, but I moved out to Orange County about two years ago to be with my now boyfriend, Shane. He's been living out here for a while. And before that I was in Los Angeles. So I'm pretty new to the area, but I'm like 99% sure that this is going to be home base for whenever we're ready to start a family. So, you know, I kind of fell in love. Can't go back. Yeah, definitely. Orange County's where it's at. Um, okay. So what, tell me about your relationship with drinking. Like when did you start drinking and when did you realize that it was something that you needed kind of help to control? For sure. So, I mean, I wouldn't say I started, you know, much earlier than the, the average person, 15 around, you know, eighth grade, ninth grade experimenting, you know, stealing from your parents' liquor cabinet. Um, But for me, I I noticed from the beginning, the way that I drank was a little bit different than a lot of my friends. I really found that whenever we were drinking, I just didn't want to stop. Like I I wanted to drink more. I wanted to stay up later. I wanted to keep going, even if there wasn't really anything going on, even if it was just me and one other person. So from, you know, day one, my relationship with alcohol was different than I think the, the normal moderate drinker. And it really didn't take me long to start getting in trouble, um, you know, with underage drinking and parties and things like that. And that really just um, accumulated upon itself until I was about 23 when I actually finally got sober. Um, but the time in between like 15 and 23 was quite tumultuous. And I think it's hard for a lot of people my age and younger to identify with sobriety because, you know, there's so much stigma. People think it's boring. People think, you know, your, your life's going to be over. And so it's really hard to think that, oh, well, what's my life going to be like if I don't drink and I'm 23 or I'm in college? Um, Yeah, like the social life. It's just so ingrained in society. Yeah. And especially, I think, in America and our college culture, it's really like a rite of passage. And so you're really around everybody else who's also binge drinking and, you know, also sometimes getting in trouble and it's almost like you're living in a bubble. And so for me, I use that as a kind of way to validate like, oh, well, you know, um, some of my friends are also getting arrested for, you know, underage drinking and, you know, a fake ID or, oh, I'm not the only one that's blacking out. But realistically, you know, the research that I do now shows that about 20% of college students actually could be considered to have an alcohol use disorder. 
So it's not that I was, you know, doing something normal. It's that I was surrounding myself with other people who also were drinking to excess and I kind of got to hide in plain sight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how, like, then what happened to make you realize, Hey, this is a problem that needs to be solved in the college and young people community. And like, when you realized like, Hey, should I go to AA? And then you kind of like, were not so enchanted with AA because it's kind of like geared towards, you know, like more, you you explain I just love yeah, how you really. explained it to me earlier so <laughs> I'll let you explain. for sure yeah so when I got sober and this makes it sound like it was so long ago which in retrospect it's not but in the recovery space there's been a ton of stuff that's been happening and so this is why when I say oh five years ago or oh six years ago it doesn't seem like a long time but in the actual sobriety and recovery space there's been an immense amount of change happening. So five or six years ago, when I was, you know, going through the phases, I went to rehab out here in California. Um, I was doing AA meetings and, you know, I was kind of coming back and forth, you know, going out and drinking and partying, trying to stay sober for a little while. I hadn't really made a decision yet if I was ready. I knew that I had a problem. I knew that this was not something I could maintain long-term but it was kind of like being in a really bad relationship and you're just not ready to let go. Yeah. And so eventually, you know, enough, I had enough bad experiences and they accumulated on top of one another. And, you know, there was just really one night and I, it's hard to explain. Um, but for me, there was just uh, an internal transformation that, uh, you know, it was a bad night, not, not worse necessarily than other bad nights that I'd had, but it was just, like I had said, an accumulation of so many bad experiences that you can only take so much kind of like the, the water finally had boiled over. And so I just said, you know, enough is enough. I don't want to live like this anymore. It's, it's exhausting. I'm losing my friends. I'm losing relationships. I'm waking up not feeling great. And I'm really, it's more than anything, it was really negatively affecting my mental health. And as somebody who does struggle with uh, anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, alcohol was really negatively affecting the way that I was functioning and it really wasn't allowing the medication that I was on to be working. So I think a lot of people with mental health issues go to alcohol and other drugs to kind of cope with what they're dealing with only they don't realize that alcohol actually, uh, you know, stops the way that a lot of the medications that were put on work. So Finally, in 2016, um, you know, I decided to get sober. And at the time, there really wasn't anything besides the, the 12 steps. And so that's what I did. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to always tell people to go there if I feel that that's what they need. And I think it's definitely more for people who were like me in the beginning who had, I had, you know, it wasn't just alcohol for me. I also had a drug addiction. So more, um, you know, I would say closer on the side to like really being an addict and, and really having a dependency on drugs or an alcohol. Um, that's where I needed to be. You know, I, I needed to realize that it was life or death for me and take it very seriously. Yeah. And so for about a year and a half, I did AA and it was really great because Los Angeles is kind of the hub for young people recovery. So there was a lot of young people meetings. There was a lot of um, you know, young people's social life um, and sobriety. But I think just like anything else, it was very clicky. And if you're familiar with the 12-step programs at all, or you're not, um, basically, probably the easiest way to describe it is some people kind of think it's a cult. Um, there are definitely cult-like aspects to it. But overall, it it's more of a support group, but it's religiously based, and there are rules. And at the end of the day, I couldn't get behind all of the rules and all of the things that they were preaching, especially as a young person, because you had some of the more hardcore older timers saying, you can't really be friends with anybody that doesn't, isn't sober. And, you know, you shouldn't be going out to the clubs. You shouldn't be going out to bars. You basically shouldn't be doing any of the things that, you know, at 23, I wanted to still do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, all right, well, there has to be a way for me to do this, but my way, you know, so 
I kind of ventured out and started to really read a lot and research about addiction. And, you know, I found a really great cognitive behavioral therapist, which is really the kind of therapy they recommend for people who go through substance abuse, because it's all about learning how to sit in your feelings, learning how to be uncomfortable and dealing with your emotions without, you know, outsourcing, so to speak. And this goes for eating disorders. This goes for, you know, gambling, shopping, all those kinds of things that anybody can really, you know, get addicted to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I kind of came up with the idea to start the dry club um, a few years after that, because it was really hard for me to find other sober individuals, especially people my age, who were outside of the 12 step program who didn't drink, you know, there was no other groups, really, there was no online Instagram community yet. And so I just thought, you know, at the time, I had a pretty popular wellness influencer platform um, on Instagram. And so I decided to use that to start talking about my sobriety more openly, which um, is kind of the no-no, you're, you know, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, And slowly but surely, I was able to find some other like-minded individuals through hashtags. And that's kind of how the dry life, uh, you know, started. Wow. So that's great that you, you started it on social media. And so very quickly, how quickly was it that it became um, a thing? Like now it's called 1000 hours dry. Tell me about that. And tell me about the community because I know you have it all over the nation and the world, correct? Yeah, totally. So it started off really as the 1000 hours dry challenge, which is about a 41, 42 day alcohol free challenge. Anybody can do it. It's recommended for people who are looking to, you know, just change their relationship with alcohol, whether you feel like you're drinking too much or too regularly, whether you feel like you need to lose weight, um, whether you, you might be sober curious, you know, or maybe you're just supporting a friend who is doing the challenge. Mm Um, it's a great way to kind of dip your toe into the dry life and kind of start getting some of the benefits of uh, the lifestyle of not drinking alcohol. So, you know, a lot of people find that they sleep a lot better, they have lessened anxiety, um, their skin gets clearer, um, they start to have better um, cognition. So, you know, I have an entire large list of, <laughs> of, all, the, of all the things that happen, but A lot of the big things too are, you know, for people who may be older, like my dad, he's 60. um, He did the challenge last year. And in that 42 days, he was able to lower his blood pressure, lower his cholesterol and lose about 18 pounds. And, you know, he's not looking to get sober. He just was supporting me and also realizing, you know, he wanted to lose a little weight. He wanted to start, you know, getting out of that habitual, I just retired, I don't know what to do with my time kind of a thing. And now he only drinks on the weekends and he has his his fridge stocked full of NA beers, Uh, which is pretty cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and a lot of times people just don't realize like how much it is that you're drinking, you know, like if you Mm -hmm. go to happy hour in the afternoon with like a friend or, you know, it's just the the whole thing you know I I recently started watching Sex in the City again and I was like oh my gosh it's so much fun to go out like with your girlfriends and have like you know a fancy cocktail but it's like also you just need to look at it in a different way like ask your friends to go on a walk or like you know go to dinner without drinking wine it's actually like easy to do but just like for even for someone like me that, um, you know, hasn't really struggled that much with it, but like, it just, it's, it's kind of eye opening when you do put your mind to like just doing 30 days or 43 days. And, um, it's uh, really helpful. And I really think that it's great that you're um, making it so much more common. Um, what is it with the 1000 hours and the 43 days? Is there like a certain like reason that you chose that number? Yeah. So, um, it, it wasn't anything, you know, crazy scientific. I had actually just hit my 1000 days sober Mm -hmm. and I wanted to implement that into my audience at the time. 
Um, and, you know, a thousand days is probably around three years or so. And so obviously I'm not going to challenge people to go three yeah. years. It's a long <laughs> yeah. time. Um, and there's a lot of 30 day challenges out there and there's a couple 90 and a hundred days. So I was like, you know, six weeks is a good amount of time. It's doable. And there are a lot of people that I know that can do 30 days. Why not just add on 11 yeah. more? You know, you're really, it's, it's very attainable. Yeah. And like I had said before, you know, those benefits that you get in those six weeks um, really give you a pretty good idea of what your life could possibly look like without alcohol. And, you know, even for people that aren't looking to be sober or to abstain from alcohol completely, it's really, you know, like you said, you, you realize how habitual your drinking can become, especially, you know, with COVID and now coming out of this pandemic, you know, I had a lot of friends actually, you know, who are not sober friends, just my regular friends come up and say, you know, I think I'm going to do the challenge because I realized I drink a lot more than I thought, you yeah. know, now that I'm stuck inside the house, I can't really blame it on socializing. anymore. Yeah. You know, I want that glass of wine every day after work. And, um, you know, now that statistics are really showing that zero amount of alcohol is safe, you know, the guidelines up until last year were that you could have one to two in moderation. And now the suggestion is zero. And, um, you know, I, I think people don't like to hear that, you know, anytime you're attacking or, or pointing out something people are doing that's not good for them, they feel a little bit defensive. And I, I totally get that I was, you know, I was on that other side too. But it's scary to think that, for example, um, a case study was just done um, two years ago, showing that the risk of carcinogenic in one bottle of wine, which is about five glasses, is the same as smoking 10 cigarettes. Oh, wow. Well, that's scary. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you yeah. wouldn't, like, the normal person, I would never smoke cigarettes. Like, I would never, at let alone 10. But, like, sure, I'll have a bottle of wine. But it's just, it's so ingrained in our culture that, like, wine and wine is normal and an easy way to unwind and... Yeah. And having a cold beer in the sun in the summertime in Laguna Beach, like it sounds great. But yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's the mind shift that is so important, I think. And um, I, I, I like that you, the 1000 hours because like six weeks isn't that what they say um, is the amount of time to create a new habit. Honestly, depends on how long it took you to form the habit. So it's something I learned actually in the beginning of my sobriety. And I think of it more like this. Um, I started drinking at 15. I got sober at 23. So I drank for about eight years. So in the span of my lifetime, that doesn't seem like a lot. But at the same time, you know, at least when it comes to alcohol, think of it like this, you know, the brain is neuroplastic. And so we, we have so many automatic thought processes and brain processes that happen, um, you know, brushing our teeth in the morning, you know, waking up and having, um, I, I think of it like this, uh, when I go to vacuum sometimes, um, I won't even go to turn on the, the power and I'll just automatically like plug it in, go and turn the power button on and like move the vacuum and, it, and I'll be like oh wait like I have to turn the power on because it's so automatic for me or like brushing my teeth you know like try yeah. telling somebody hey you know for the next week try brushing your teeth with your left hand if you're right-handed or vice versa yeah and it's extremely hard um, it's those formative years. I mean, that's exactly those were such important years. And that's when you that's when many of us learned that habit of drinking socially. And so, yeah, it is it's hard to break a, a habit that is just so ingrained. Definitely. So, you know, I'm not sitting here and saying it's going to take me eight years to break the habit. Right. But I definitely think to say three years uh, or excuse me, three weeks. Um, is definitely not enough time, especially yeah. if you are, you know, once again, it, it's not even about substance abuse necessarily, but just habitual drinking, maladaptive drinking, gray area. 
Um, so if you feel like your alcohol intake is affecting you negatively in any way, you know, it could be that you just don't feel great in the morning or that, you know, you're not sleeping as well. Um, you know, maybe kind of jerk and, you know, people don't really want to be around you or, you know, it just doesn't bring out a very negative you. So these yeah. are all things that, you know, to consider. Um, yeah. But I would say it actually, it takes a couple months at least to learn um, or relearn to start to deal with things without drinking. And the really important part I would say is hitting the ground running and really starting to implement habit change because what they talk about in behavioral psychology a lot, especially in this, um, in this realm is the habit loop, which you know, can be applied to anything, but it's really about, we get triggered to do something, then we go do it, we take the action, we're, we're rewarded in some form, and then it starts over. So, you know, it doesn't have to be about drinking, it could be, like, one example, I, I try not to, and I've gotten better, but I used to be really, really bad at picking my skin, and part of that for me is OCD, part of that is just, I've always really liked, like, Dr. Pimple Popper and all that gross stuff. So um, I would get in the habit of every time I would walk in the bathroom, I would turn the light on. And first, and that light turning on was a trigger for me to cue me, all right, let's go look at my skin. And so I, half the time, probably more than half the time, I wasn't even thinking about picking my skin. I was just doing it. And I'd find myself in the middle of like, oh crap, you know, how did I get here? Um, and so that realization that, um, you know, okay, whenever I turn on that light, I have to be really, really mindful to do everything I can to not pick. And it's not just about abstaining, but it's about replacing with something else. So mm -hmm. especially when you're quitting drinking, it's really important not to just say, all right, I'm not going to drink anymore for whatever reason. And then just sit in your uncomfortable feelings forever and not do anything about it, you know, you'll definitely start to digress and probably go back to drinking. So for yeah. me, it was really, exercising was really important, meditation, um, learning about things that I really like to do besides drink, because, you know, at the time, at 23, um, you know, I didn't really have an identity outside of, of alcohol. Unfortunately, it was very much, you know, parties and um, planning parties and going out. Um, and drinking. And so I, I didn't even know what I liked to do if it didn't involve drinking. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people are like that. Mm -hmm. um, so how do your, like, obviously there's so many people that are young and old that need this. And I mean, that's why the 1000 hours dry community just like snowballed into what it is now. I mean, say how how big it is and how many countries it's in I mean I know you guys have like multiple Instagram accounts in like so many different cities um it's just su such an uh thing that people needed so why do you think that is and what do you think that it gives the community offers to someone that is trying to become sober or sober curious totally um you know, I would say, so we're probably about 40,000 members now. Wow. That's here in the U.S., that's in Canada um, and the U.K. And then we, we do have members in other countries, but those are where we have actual chapters. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I think really the dry club came about at the right time. You know, my generation, the millennial generation and the younger generation are very, we're very health conscious, you know, younger people, even more so than the millennials, you know, we want to know what we're putting in our body, we want to know what's in everything, you know, to a point where it's probably obnoxious. Um, but with that, you know, comes, you know, we, we got to question everything. And now that the internet is available, the information is attainable. And so, you know, it's not that people didn't have the same questions 30 years ago, but you know, people didn't have the same availability to information. They didn't have the same availability to support or online community. And so now 
you know, we're living in an age where the mental health is at an all time low, you know, people are really struggling with, with substances, especially alcohol. Um, and, you know, people are realizing, you know, it's not, it's not even that it's, oh, it's not good for us. It's, oh, it's bad for us because it's, you know, it's perfect what you said. Oh, I would never smoke cigarettes, but I don't have a problem having, you know, a glass of wine or, or a cocktail. And that's the kind of mindset that, you know, big alcohol has marketed to us so well. And it really goes back to the prohibition, you know, when we tried to ban alcohol, that didn't work, which, you know, with anything, you can't ban it completely. It just won't, it won't work. Uh, people are going to find a way. Um, but, you know, when they reinstated everything, you know, big alcohol basically said, I never want this to happen again. And they really inserted themselves in everything. You know, alcohol is involved in lobbyists. They give money to politicians. You know, they kind of have their hand in all the different pots. So when you think about it, it makes sense that people don't really know about the dangers of, you know, a lot of, of a lot of consuming um, alcohol or really any consumption at all because, you know, nobody, everybody's kind of letting it slide. It's a beverage, but people, you know, don't really categorize it as a beverage because it doesn't have a nutrition label. Yeah. And it's a drug, but nobody wants to say it's a drug. So it's, oh, well, it's just alcohol, drugs and alcohol. You know, it gets its own category, even though it's just a drug, you know, it's a, a liquid form. So it's kind of made its way and really kind of slithered by up until now when people are finally realizing, you know, people are getting cancer at younger ages, you know, oh, yeah. we're getting, and, and not just one type of cancer, you know, alcohol causes seven different types of cancer. And especially in women, like, I, I believe if you drink regularly, which moderate, moderate consumption for a woman is one drink a day. So if you drink more than seven drinks a week or one drink a day, you're at about 15 to 20% higher risk of getting breast cancer than somebody that doesn't drink at all or drinks moderately or, you know, less than moderate. Um, And so it's really scary to think, oh, wow, you know, and this is just for recreation because, you know, I'm pretty, I like to think of myself as like a healthy person. You know, I'm, I'm careful about the groceries I buy. I'm careful about the food I consume. I don't smoke. I don't even drink caffeine. Um, you know, and then there's so many things out there that we can't even control, you know, radio waves, uh, phone, you know, the eye watch. Like I always, I'm always saying, I'm like, you know, I'm super healthy, but I swear to God, this Apple watch will probably <laughs> some sort of radiation is that's probably what's going to get me, which is going to be so ironic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but we really holding don't know, the phone right? to our heads and yeah, exactly. People that sleep with their phone under their pillow. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of one of those things that I think a lot of people, we don't want to think about it and it's too far in the future for us to really worry about it right now. Yeah. But, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And that's where I think the dry club really comes in right now and is saying, you know, we're not going to let it be out of sight, out of mind. We're going to educate people. We're not going to tell you, you have to be sober. We're not going to shove it in your face. We're just going to give you the tools and the resources to make your own informed decision because only one out of five Americans actually knows that alcohol gives you cancer. So those four people that actually don't even know, don't even have a fighting chance. You know, you can't go up to somebody and say, oh, why are you drinking that? It's terrible for you. They're going to say, oh, you know, buzz off. Like, but if, if you really sat down with somebody and said, you know, how much do you actually consume a day or a week? You know, did, do you know that this is the equivalent of, you know, how many can, you know, how many cigarettes you would actually be smoking if you smoke cigarettes? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you kind of start to give them um, a bigger picture and you realize like, wow, you know, of all the things I can control in my life when I, and things I can't you know, consuming alcohol is something I can't control. Yeah. And it's something that you can actually live and have a really fulfilled, amazing, fun, adventurous life without. And, you know, that was a big one for me, especially being a young person to think, well, you know, what am I going to do? Yeah. Like, like you said, sex in the city, you know, like it's very romanticized and, you know, I still get caught up in it too. If I'm watching certain movies or listening to certain music, but you know, just like anything else, it's a highlight reel, you know, yeah. 
You're not, we're not seeing commercials where the person's waking up hungover or waking up and they don't know who's in their bed or, you know, they look at their text messages and they've sent a bunch that they regret and, you know, it's, yeah. Or they get, or they get breast cancer or they get breast cancer. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's, it really scares me because I, I even know, I know people in my life who, who have fought cancer or, or who are fighting cancer and they still drink. Well, I, yeah, four (laughs) years ago, I got diagnosed with breast cancer and I like, I, when I met with the oncologist, I told her, I was like, do I need to stop eating candy? Do I need to stop um, drinking wine? (laughs) And she was like, oh no, you can keep drinking it. You can keep eating candy, like just monitor, like, like on moderation. And I was like, so scared at that point, I would have like never had another piece of candy or never had another glass of wine or Mm. never had another uh, piece of pizza or cheese (laughs) again. But like, she told me it was all okay, which yeah in moderation but like I kind of do wish she would have told me like don't ever have another glass of wine because like I was 33 I mean that's too young that's so young and I mean I've I know when I was younger you know I always thought of breast cancer as something that I might have to worry about in my like 40s 50s you know 60s um but now I, you know, knowing people who've gotten it in their early thirties and even yeah. reading about people who've gotten it in their early twenties and thinking like, uh, okay, maybe it doesn't run in my family, but yeah. you know, I can't help once again, I can't help what is going on around me, the air that we're breathing, you know, things like that. Um, yeah. and you know, not that I'm a doctor, I'm not, but I think, and what, what I tell people and you know, when people say that, well, you know, my physician, and I kind of just ask, well, you know, how old is your physician? Because unless they just got out of med school, um, which, you know, you wouldn't even be seeing them, they'd be a resident. Um, Everything is just changing, like literally last year. Yeah. So you have to think anybody who ever went to medical school or went, you know, and did a PhD program, um, or any physician's assistant nursing school before last year, we're all taught that, alcohol in moderation is okay. Yeah. And it's just now last year that all these things are changing, you know, and in a lot of cases, a lot of, you know, people I know who work in the medical field said that like, oh yeah, we were still taught like, you know, just send people to AA. But realistically, um, you know, it's going to be a slow change, but I really see probably in the next 10, 20 years, doctors are going to be taught, you know, there is no healthy level of alcohol consumption. And when you think about drugs and you think about tobacco or cocaine, um, you know, you automatically think, well, you know, there's, there's no benefit to, to doing this, you know, there's no, uh, reason to do it. There's no, um, medical reason to do it either. And, you know, we, things we thought, you know, a hundred years ago, oh, use cocaine for everything. It's the miracle drug or, you know, oh, well, my doctor prescribed me cigarettes. So, you know, we've been wrong before, needless to say. Um, but it, you know, things are, things are changing. And, and as much as I think, you know, you want to be able to to trust your doctor when it comes to alcohol and cigarettes. It's like things literally just changed last year. Yeah, so yeah. I'm sure they're getting updated, you know, and they have to go through programs and, and learn new things. But, yeah. You know, yeah, I'm looking like right now at breastcancer.org and it literally says compared to women who don't drink at all, women who have three alcoholic drinks per week have a 15 percent higher risk of breast cancer. Yeah. Experts estimate that the risk of breast cancer goes up 10% for each additional drink women have regularly each day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that's not even like, you know, that's three drinks. Is That's like what most people have in one sitting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, yeah. Um, I, I might join your group. <laughs> yeah, no. I, and, I, and I say this, right. And I, I try not to, I don't want to scare people in the way that I think more traditional programs scare people like where you're going to get addicted this is going to happen your life because unless you're an actual addict those things are probably not going to happen yeah um but other things can happen you know it can affect your blood pressure it can affect your you know your heart it can affect your liver your skin 
especially like we live in Orange County. We're very vain here. Um, So it surprises (laughs) me, honestly, like how much money people are willing to pay to look younger and to take care of themselves and all these other ways, but then going and getting trashed on the weekend. And I'm like, you know, your skin is your biggest organ and alcohol dehydrates, dehydrates it completely. It ages you also, you know, like there's, there's so many negative things to it and it's highly addictive. Um, it, it kills, I think almost, and you know, these statistics were just updated, um, I believe in October, but they weren't even for 2020. It was actually for 2017. So I imagine the number was higher, but alcohol kills at least 100,000 people a year in just the United States and about 3 million people a year in the world. Wow. Yeah, it, it's, it, it definitely needs to um, be put out there that it's not so <laughs> culturally acceptable. You know, it shouldn't be. I mean, I, I think about it in the sense that I, I, I look at beer like, okay, 100 calories. I'm not sure mm-hmm. quite exactly how much it is, but you know, compare it to soda. I would never drink four root beers in a night. Like that would just be absolutely crazy to me. I I would think that is like so unhealthy to do, but like I'll have three beers or four beers, you know, like easy. I'm like day drinking, you know, you could have six, but you would never ever have six cokes or six bags of sour patch kids you know like that would just be like a definite no but like it's totally like fine to have you know a bunch of beers or wines oh yeah yeah well and I I think people try and get around it too because you know I give my boyfriend slack for this because he's just a whiskey drinker he's not really into beer he's not really into wine and whiskey is really not high in calories there's no sugar in it Mm -hmm. um so a lot of people who who drink you know things on the rocks or with you know tonic water um low calorie it's kind of that validation of like well you know it's really it's kind of empty calories in that sense but it's not a lot you know this white claw phase that I've never actually tried one because you know I had gotten sober before they were popular but that's kind of their hook and spiel is like oh it's like what 100 calories for a whole can and no or very low sugar. Um, but the thing is, what people don't realize is your body doesn't actually absorb alcohol. Like it physically can't. That's why your blood alcohol level goes up. So your body doesn't store alcohol. You know, if it did, it would be like a vitamin or like a mineral. So the more you drink, the higher your BAC goes, right? Yeah. So if your body can't store alcohol, what does it do? Okay. It needs to process it so it can get it out. You know, it can, it has to, you, you pee it out, you sweat it out, you puke it out, um, you know, and, and once it's out, it's out. But the thing is, as long as there's alcohol in your system, your body's going to be using that alcohol as its energy source, because it doesn't have anywhere else to go, which means anything else you're putting in your body while you're consuming alcohol is getting stored as fat. Ooh. So pizza, this is del where, taco. <laughs> mm-hmm. Think about, yeah, those late nights, those, those hangover cures yeah. that you're getting in the morning, you know, like you think, oh, it's soaking up the alcohol. And in, in a sense, you know, I guess it's making it so maybe you have less acid reflux, but because your body can't actually do anything with the alcohol, except for push it out, it goes to the top of the list. So yeah, if you're going to dinner with friends and you're having a couple of drinks, all that stuff is getting stored as fat. Like, and, and I think that's where for me, somebody who used to be a personal trainer, somebody who is super health conscious, I was like, wow, you know, that, that really for, for me explained the weight gain in college, because even though I was still super, you know, healthy when it came to food and I was still exercising regularly, I put on that regular, you know, 15 pound gain. And it was because, you know, probably four or five days a week I was drinking. Yeah. Um, how would someone right now in Orange County, like get involved with you? You can get involved locally by following the 1000 hours dry Cali page, or just look up 1000 hours dry C A L I and the page will come up. Okay. Um, and now that things are starting to open, 
We're going to be having more meetups. Um, you know, things are going to be, my, my idea was always, you know, meeting up and taking a walk t- on the back bay, going to the beach, um, doing brunch at like Lido, um, you know, or Earth Cafe. And there's, I mean, we live in, in a destination area. There's so much to do all the time outside um, and things we can do to be active. And um, right now I actually have a pretty solid group of girlfriends that um, are also sober. Um, you can find them online here in Orange County. One of them, her name is Shay. Um, her handle is No Booze Babes. And then we have Esther. She's usually known as Sober Otter, but both of them are here and local. And we usually get together. We do, we'll go to like a spin class or a Pilates class. Um, and we're kind of actually, we've been growing our girl gang, so to speak, with some other um, awesome sober women in the area and just, you know, doing things that we enjoy actually doing, which I think sometimes, you know, when you're drinking and, and those are the connections that you have with the people around you, you don't even really know if what you're doing is what you're enjoying, you know, like, am yeah. I really enjoying what's happening or, or do I really actually like the people I hang out with? Um, and I found, you know, the past five years of my sobriety, I've had some of the really the closest and the best and the most meaningful friendships and relationships because people get to be around me, the real me at all times. I get to be present and I get to show up for them. Um, And we're, nobody's looking for anything from each other. You know, it's a very reciprocal relationship. And so, you know, just this weekend I had one of my sober girlfriends over and my cousin also doesn't drink. So the three of us just went to the pool. We were doing some vision boarding, came back. We were watching Body Bazaar and made some homemade pizzas. And how fun. Yeah, to me, you know, like I no longer, I think of it this way. Like I know I no longer require a really high level of stimulation to enjoy myself. Mm-hmm. Beforehand, I needed to go out. I needed to be seen, you know, like even, even in the beginning of my sobriety, I still needed to go to the bungalow. I needed to go to One Oak, you know, I needed to come down here and go to Lido Rooftop. And I, I felt like I needed to prove something. And now I'm like, you know what? I love my job. I love what I get to do for my community. We're getting a puppy on Friday. Aww. I know. Um, a little French bulldog. Um, oh, we should go on play dates. Yes. But, you know, that's my my whole kind of concept of fun and enjoyment has changed. And it really doesn't take a lot for me now to to enjoy myself or to be happy. Like I said, you know, we bought a couple magazines and we did some vision boarding. And, you know, that cost $30 for all of us just bought a bunch of magazines, glue, you know, all that stuff. Um, and I, it, it allowed me to also be creative, you know, so I got to be creative with friends. And then, you know, just hanging out and, and watching TV. I don't, I don't need to go out to the club anymore, or go out to crazy fancy dinners. And me and my boyfriend will do like a, a date night, you know, usually once a week, but even that, um, it's not required for me anymore to feel like um, my life means something or I'm, you know, keeping up with the Joneses or something like, so I'm really happy with where I'm. a lot of people could, could get there. You know, like I said, not necessarily having to abstain, but really just living a, a lower alcohol life or a mindful drinking life where, you know, you treat alcohol the way you treat like chocolate cake. Well, I don't eat chocolate cake that often, but maybe once a month, if we're out at a nice restaurant, I'll get a piece, you know, and I enjoy it and I savor it, but it's definitely not something I'm doing regularly. And I think if more, more people treated alcohol that way, it would be more enjoyable too for them. And, you know, they would just be all around happier and healthier and have better connections with themselves um, and with other people. Um, but yeah, definitely. I, I, I like that it's not, it doesn't have to be all or nothing, you know, like totally. AA, it's all or nothing. And if you slip up, then you start over from like day one, you know, no matter how many years sober you've been, but like with your, with 1000 hours dry, you know, it, it's not all, you don't have to be 
all in or nothing, you know, like you guys are like forgiving if you, you know, I read your post about Vegas, like a couple months ago. And it was like, so cool, because and you allowed yourself to have a drink because you knew but you just like, it wasn't the same for you, you know, you didn't like it. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, it always it always made sense to me because my thought and my background and, you know, what I studied in, in school was psychology and behavioral psychology. And because I don't believe in the disease model, I don't think addiction or alcoholism is something you're born with. I think it's, you know, a combination of epigenetics, which is, you know, you have some predisposition. I think we all do to certain things. Um, and then it's the environment you grow up with. It's, mm-hmm. you know, what's familiar to you. Um, you know, do your parents drink a lot? Uh, are you in an, in a culture or in, you know, an area that drinking is really socially acceptable? And, you know, you put all these things together, you know, did you have trauma? Were you in an accident? Did something happen to you? Um, and all these things kind of added up can put you at a higher risk. And so for me, it was like, I knew that because I wasn't born with this, because it's something that I had basically learned, you know, to cope with, it was a symptom of something else for me. Um, I knew that if I dealt with the root cause, and I really healed, and I really recovered, that if I did ever want to go back to drinking, that it would be an option, because coming from a scientific perspective, it's not a disease, and it's something that you can, you know, overcome, if it's a disorder that you can recover from, then you should be able to, you know, when you think about eating disorders, people who have eating disorders or overeating, they can't not eat ever again, or Mm -hmm. sex addicts, they're never going to not have sex again. So their 12 steps are a little bit different. They have a lot more gray area. So I, my thought is like, well, why can't substance abuse have a gray area? Because you really are asking people a lot when you say, okay, you can never do any of this ever again. And like you said, if you do, you're a failure, you lose your, you know, your time, your commitments. And to me, it's like, the three times I've drank in the past five years, I didn't lose anything. I learned a lot. I wouldn't even consider them mistakes. You know, it's something that taught me a little bit more about myself. It taught me about where I was, how I was growing. And what it really just reminded me is that I really like being alcohol free. I really like waking up and not being hungover. And I like always feeling, you know, except for maybe if I'm sick, um, cognitively, like very sharp because, like I said, I was super open about Vegas and having, I think I had like three glasses of wine and nothing bad happened. I was, you know, I had a great time. I, I tried to tip the waitress, like, wait, I think like a hundred dollars. So my husband was <laughs> like, okay, you can't do that. But you know, I'm a, I, I used to be like a not very nice drunk and now I'm clearly not that. And, you know, some people <laughs> might say, well, it was just one time, you know, it's a slippery slope and, and you're right. But my intention was never to go back to where I wanted or where I was that would, you know, if I even thought for a second that that was a possibility, I would not have even considered trying it again. But it's also something that was, you know, my personal journey, I worked on it for a long time. I went almost four years of abstinence before I even considered having a drink. And it's something, you know, I talked with a professional about too. This was not a light decision. It was not something that was sporadic and impulsive. It was very thought out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I woke up and didn't feel great, <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. and had to spend, you know, the day in Vegas with all the smoke because people are still smoking inside, even with masks. And, you know, like, I just couldn't, my body, you know, was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, excuse my language, but yeah. truly, you know, when you don't, it's like you said, imagine if you just went and chugged for like, straight up real Dr. Peppers right now, (laughs) you know, your blood sugar would be crazy. Your teeth would probably feel funny. Your stomach would feel funny. You know, your body would just be like, what are you doing? You've been feeding me premium oil and now you're giving me like the bottom of the barrel. Oh my gosh. That's such a good quote. (laughs) And yeah, that, that's kind of just how I, I think about it. And, and, you know, do I consider myself a sober person? Definitely. I, but I also don't identify anymore. Like I think for me, labels just don't work. They don't work with my sobriety. They don't work with my sexuality. Uh, I, I just am a person and I like what I like and I 
and I do what I do and I have a lifestyle and that works for me. Um, And, you know, if something serves a purpose in my life, it serves a purpose. And if it's working for me now, awesome. It doesn't mean it's going to work for me in a year from now or even six months from now. So I'm always open to transforming and evolving and I'm open and and now now you know what I was saying a year ago I was totally against recreational alcohol use and marijuana use now I use CBD and I've you know I've had a couple drinks and so it's not even uh, excuse me like hypocrisy it's more of I'm open to my constant transformation and you know I think the rigidity and the perfectionism and the very black and white um, is unhealthy for most people and it's unrealistic. And that's not how we're going to help to normalize sobriety and the alcohol-free lifestyle by, you know, making it so hardcore. Yeah, yeah. It's different for everyone. And so, uh, that, yeah, that's great that that's what you're preaching. So um, for a listener that wants to get in touch with you, how can they find you and um, how can they find your podcast? Totally. So you can reach me at the Thousand Hours Dry page. Um, and my podcast, which is called the dry life podcast is on all all, like all and all podcast platforms. So if you just look up the dry life, um, you can tune in and that's really where I usually interview somebody or I talk about something specific, but it's really for anybody who's sober, sober curious. And it's really just all about what the alcohol free lifestyle or the mindful drinking lifestyle entails And I talk to a bunch of different people about their different stories. And it's a really good way to, you know, if you are maybe thinking, oh, I want to try it out, or I don't know if my relationship with alcohol is, you know, bad or anything. Just what I always say is like, go, we'll go listen to other people's stories. Because if you start to hear your story and other people's stories, you know, that's where your red flags are. And that's where you can understand, oh, okay, well, I'm not alone. I have a support system. I have other people that understand what I'm going through. And that's when you can start reaching out and, you know, getting better and improving if, you know, that's what you want to do. To join Kayla's Sober Challenge, join the online community on Instagram at 1000 Hours Dry or subscribe to her weekly podcast called The Dry Life.